0: You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week we have plenty to follow up on and plenty to talk about, including bread, cheese, mold, having sex, and dirty bread boxes. This and plenty more on episode 60. It feels like it's been a long time since we've uh, last talked, and I know we had Austin on last time, so we've got some follow-up now.
1: We do. We have a lot of follow-up, actually.
0: Which is good. That means that, uh, that we learned new things. Other people, other listeners know, know more. So something that uh, Jay from Reno, Nevada was uh, very kind to email in about was about uh, cask, beer, and nitrogen. And uh, I guess starting with uh, the question that we had posed in regard to what about using nitrogen in water? What would that do? And uh, so he said it probably wouldn't really do much of anything, and it would just kind of be like like mineral water that had gone flat. So like maybe a little something, but nothing much. But more importantly, he was writing in to let us know that, the, that what we had about cask beer and nitrogen was incorrect.
1: Yeah. Well, I knew that cask beer was the original draft beer. I was just wrong about um, how the beer is drawn through the tubing to get it from um, – you know, the keg to the glass. Um, And Jay told us that it's through a pneumatic pump that draws the beer and that it's carbonated at a low level with the final steps of fermentation. I'm just reading exactly what he said. But, I mean, he has a really great explanation. So it just says um, the final steps of fermentation to supply the uh, CO2 um, through this pneumatic pump, and then the nitrogen was a way to mimic the body of a cask beer on a modern draft setup.
0: Yeah, I mean it's kind of with with like the modern kegerators. As far as I understand, like the the difference, which isn't in this this email, but as far as I understand, like there's it's kind of like a a different, not only a different, obviously a nitrogen tank as opposed to a CO two tank. But then also, it's the fittings are different and the uh, the gauges are different. But otherwise, they're pretty much kind of the similar. So, like as far as I understand, it kind of seems like that's what what Jay's talking about too, is that they're going to be a regular keg and a nitrogen keg are going to have similar setups, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And he also said that nitrogen is much lighter than carbon dioxide and beer, so there's little left in the little left in the beer once it's poured. Um, I but think it looks that so pretty means... when it's pouring. It is really pretty, Um, and I think that also contributes to why it tastes a little different, Um, and it's uh, creamier um, instead of – you know, when you drink carbonated water, sometimes it's – if it's really cold and you drink it really fast, it's kind of like that burning –
0: and if it, yeah, if it's over carbonated, like mm-hmm. I, I like me some mineral water, that's not like then forced carbonated as well. Whereas like i I know some mineral waters will also have like, they'll be naturally sparkling, but then also be forced. And those ones just get a little too sharp. That's my kind of, uh, but I actually some follow-up in regard to, I know I had mentioned doing some do it yourself carbonation outside of even for just uh, water or for beverages or for dairy or anything. And I tried it with the vinegar and baking soda in a, in two bottles. And I didn't have a tight enough seal. It sort of worked, but it didn't work completely. So I'd have to go out and get some different stuff. But then when I started really thinking about it, it's like, well, if I really want carbonation, I might as well get something a little bit different. And there are some DIY methods out there for creating something that, you know, about a hundred dollars in parts, but then it's about $0.04 cents, uh, per 2-liter bottle. So way, way better than like SodaStream prices of and getting the CO2 cartridges and different things like that, which are about $0.50 cents a piece. So, you know, it's like, it's just like, well, I mean, you can pretty much get carbonated water for almost um, not that much more than that. So, But at $0.04 cents a 2-liter bottle, that's not too bad. And so I, I'm considering going that route if I ever want to do forced carbonation.
1: Yeah. Um, can you post that on the... Um, show notes. Cause I'd yeah. like to see that too.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, I think the best and most affordable way to do it because I mean, it, if four cents per two liter versus 50 cents for like what a, a quart or, or a half liter or whatever it is that the soda streams and other siphons do. I mean, it's like the, the, the cost return is skyrockets pretty fast, depending on how much someone's drinking carbonated beverages. Mm-hmm. And I was just recently, someone was telling me that they carbonate their kefir which I like the natural carbonation doing a second ferment with that. But I really like the idea of a um, I'll just even a little bit more bubble, really getting that champagne of milk's quality to it.
1: Yeah. I've never thought about um, doing that and, um, with kefir because um, it naturally ferments a little or uh, get, you get that little residual CO2 buildup. And that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would, how it would be with when it's, a lot of carbonation like that in a milk product.
0: No, well, maybe you haven't carbonated yours enough. I've done it sometimes where I've gotten my kefir really carbonated, but it's a fine line. And that's where it's like, I really like that tactile experience. It just totally changes the the taste perception and just the overall enjoyment for me drinking kefir. But it also is a fine line where it's, it's going through a second fermentation. So, or the second in the closed container. And so it's going to get a little bit more, sparkling, but it's also going to get a little bit more sour. And so balancing that before it separates and turns from in the solids in the way. And that's kind of the issue that I have. So if I could get what I want with still getting the flavor profile that I want after about 24 hours, then I I think it's a win-win.
1: Hmm, I'll have to try that too. Um, because that sounds kind of interesting to do a side by side and just see which one I, I personally like. Um, because I kind of like it, not really that carbonated, but maybe if. But I do like carbonated water, um, and you know, carbonated beer stuff like that. So, and hmm. then
0: taking because I like to cook with d- fermented dairy products, or bake with them, put them into breads and and quick breads, especially in different things. And so the idea of what little we learned about carbonation in doughs, and although it didn't probably relate to the apple bread that we were making in general it seems that like you know if it's incorporated within 15 minutes or so th- that sparkling aspect's going to do something too and then the dairy aspect so sparkling kefir then put into dough could be magical
1: yeah and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because i was going to tell you that i made that 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 apple bread um, again again but not with the apples i didn't follow the recipe i followed the recipe um Except I kind of did what you did when you made it and used a sourdough starter. Um, And I also, instead of using the sparkling apple cider that they suggested, I used um, um, just carbonated water, sparkling water. Um, And in the hopes that it would be – maybe that style would be still – the bread that would come out would be the same kind of texture that I had made with the apple bread. Um, cause I really liked the texture that, um, that carbonated, um, cider made and the yeast and it had really good rise and, um, all of that kind of stuff. I really liked that. And so I mimicked the recipe, but when I did it, it turned, the dough was so dense that I couldn't, When I added or after I added my sourdough and let it sit in the fridge for a day, um, and looked at it the next day, it didn't rise at all. Or if it if it did rise, I didn't. You couldn't really see it. Um, So we used it instead as uh, pizza dough. Turned out to be great pizza dough.
0: Oh, you didn't even bake it into bread.
1: No, we ended up. Yeah, we gave up because it was just so. I tried to. um, I thought maybe if I um, knead it a little bit and kind of incorporate maybe some air that way, maybe, or I don't know, maybe I didn't use enough water. Um, but at that point, I mean, it already sat in the fridge for a day. I couldn't just add more water to it. Cause I think that was the problem. Um, sounds that... like you
0: have some more experimentation to do.
1: Yeah, I do. Um, it was kind of, I mean, it was fun using it and it didn't really matter. We still ended up eating it and it, it did turn out to be great pizza dough. Um, because it didn't really, you know, we kind of like our pizza dough. um, like thinner, like to be able to taste it, but not the big, fluffy pizza dough that um, some people some people like in some restaurants are really good at. We don't really like that. That's too doughy because then you don't really get to taste the toppings. Like are you um, talking about
0: thin, like Neapolitan style?
1: No, not that thin. It was more – I'm trying to think of um, like a commercial brand um, of pizza that would have something very similar. Um,
0: like one of those cheap – Cardboard pizza kind of qualities that from like the frozen section.
1: Um, are... kind of, but not that still not that, not that thick because they kind of have a lot of crust too. So it was like an in-between between the Neapolitan and then, um, the like DiGiorno or Froschetta. Okay. In I think that's another them. brand. Yeah. In between those, but it so, had a lot okay. of flavor.
0: Okay. Hey, that's good. So, flavor is good.
1: Yeah. And f- um,
0: And you've been experimenting with other things lately too, right? That's what you're telling me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Austin, he, you know, he was on the show last week. Um, he came over and brought all sorts of goodies that we, that we got to try here in my house. Um, and I, he, he's a really cool person and I really, um, haven't seen him in a long time. And we got to chat afterwards and he was talking about, you know, we talked about fermentation for a little after the show. um, and we tried more of his stuff, and um, it, you know, it really motivated me to start – to kind of kickstart fermenting all the time like I used to because I haven't really been good at that recently. So You're spending um, too much
0: time talking about it and not doing it.
1: I, I know, yeah. We, we have, I have, I've been spending a lot of time talking about it and not, not doing it. So he was kind enough to um, give us a little bit of his miso that he made, the one-year miso. Um, so I made some of my own miso this week. Um, and so it's tucked away in a brown bag in the back of a closet. So we'll see how it turns out. Are in you here. following
0: the Austin approach of not, you're not going to look at it, not going to check on it?
1: Um, I probably will look at it and well, I have, I, I made so much of it that it turned it turned out to be like three separate containers. So, um, I think I might look at kind of open them. Um, And use one, like say, in um, if you divide a year into three parts, like every four months, just open one and use it and see how it changes um, since they're all made at the same time and and try to maybe keep some. So then at the very end, I'll have a big, you know, three lot change um, of how it how it does change from, you know, month, you know, start start date to, um, month, let's see, four to, you know, month eight and all that kind of stuff. So where'd I'll you get your Koji
0: from? Did you just, because I'm assuming you didn't make that this time, right?
1: I didn't make it. Um, I bought it from a, a grocery store that's just up the road from us. It's a really great Japanese, um, grocery store.
0: So is it just like in a bag, like no brand name kind of thing? Or?
1: Um, I, I believe the name is called cold mountain. Oh, the cold um, mountain
0: stuff. Like in that, mm-hmm. like little, uh, little plastic, like.
1: Yep, it comes in like it looks like a container, one of those large containers of yogurt, and you just open the top, and the inside of it is um, a plastic bag that has a zip tie, and the um, koji's inside that. So,
0: um, yeah, because I've I've only seen images of of those, I've never actually seen that in person, so I don't know if it's that it's not available here, I've just not been to the right shop, but um, I mean that's kind of why I make my own because it's just a lot cheaper than mail ordering koji. But uh, does the what's like price price range of those kind of things like of, of like a store bought koji like that?
1: Well, see, I was gonna buy koji online because I wasn't quite sure where to go get it here. Um, whereas online, like you know, you can get it, you can buy any basically anything online. Um, and I went to uh, Cultures for Health, and they were selling it for like twenty dollars for I I don't remember exactly the size, like how many pounds it was, but I thought, man, that's really expensive. Um, I think the one could,
0: thing about theirs that I, the reason I think the price is different too, is it's organic is what, Oh, the, that might
1: be it too. Yeah. Um, and I looked a few other places like on Amazon and it was still, um, a little pricey, I'd say maybe like $15 or $10. Um, and then I ran upon, ran up. Ran upon this grocery store, um, and thought I just I'll just go there and see if they have it. And they happened to have this cold, cold mountain, um, koji, and it was six dollars.
0: Yeah, that's not. So, I mean, for a little like, little pound or whatnot, or.
1: Yeah, it was about um, a pound, maybe two pounds, um, and. I mean, I used the whole thing, um, for my miso, but I mean, I also had a lot of, I also made a lot of it. So I think that it was fine. I mean, ideally I probably, I, you know, if I had thought about it and planned ahead, I would have made it myself, but you know, totally
0: have to get into making Koji
1: that kind of situation. I just went ahead and bought it. Um, just because we did have the, we had the mature miso and, um, I kept catching my husband eating little bits and pieces of it. So I had to use it really fast. Otherwise it was going to be gone.
0: <laughs> okay. I see. No, that's totally, totally legit. And I don't think there's anything wrong with using as long as it, as long as that cold mountain stuff works, um, which I I don't know exactly what kind of strain of koji it is or what it's meant to be for, but I'm assuming if it's in a Japanese restaurant that it would be likely that it's used for shoyu or for for miso. So it seems like it'd be the good thing. But like sometimes the the ones for uh, certain kinds of miso or sake are going to be of different strains um, because you can get like five or six different strains from somewhere like gem cultures. Um, oh, yeah. And then there are well, four different, different kinds of koji.
1: Oh, see, I didn't know. I didn't. I'm learning a lot about koji and um, mold um, recently because I, I don't really know that much about mold um, except how it's kind of used in fermentation. Um, and it's just something that's really sparked my interest recently. Uh, but this this cold mountain koji that I bought is specifically for making homemade miso. It says so on the container, which I oh, thought okay. was really neat. And that's oh. why I picked it up. Cause it's like, oh, well, this. This is what I probably need compared to other koji. Um, They did have maybe two other types. And um, I most of the stuff in the store was written in Japanese. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. And that's probably also why I picked the Cold Mountain, because it was in English and I could read it. Um, But inside, there was also a recipe on how to make koji. Um, It's a little different than Austin's recipe. Um, To make koji or make miso? I'm sorry, to make miso. Okay. Um, so I'll scan it and then um, and send it to you.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, I'd so. like to see what what they're recommending. But you yeah. totally have to make some koji yourself. Not that, I mean, you have a legitimate, relatively inexpensive way of making it. I mean, you can make it for about a quarter of that price um, yourself and have fresh koji mm-hmm. instead of dried koji. But uh, there's, there's definitely no reason not to just use that since it's for miso but yeah, it, no, it it's so fun easy. to make.
1: Um, yeah, I really want to. I really want to get into more of that kind of um, using molds prior to like the actual fermentation and kind of experimenting with that because that's kind of what they're for—is the molds to break down the carbohydrates into smaller pieces that the yeast or the bacteria can then use to do the fermentation. I think that's just so cool that people have figured this out and have. Um, done a lot of research and stuff on it. So, um, it's something that my interest in fermentation has taken me, um, just through curiosity. So it's really neat, but yeah, I really want to make it. So if you have any suggestions, I would be happy to, to, um, do them and, um, tell everyone how they, how it turns out.
0: Yeah. I don't remember, if, uh, prior to you being on the show, if there was a Koji episode, I don't know if there ever was, so we should do one in the future. Just really just talk about Koji because it's this, everyone should make Koji at least once in their lives. But then if you're going to get the, a little bit of equipment that's necessary to make Koji once, might as well start making it a lot because it really Mm -hmm. doesn't fully start to become, I don't know. Uh, just it's the aroma. The first time is okay. Uh, I, I liked it. It's kind of a little fruity, sweet, uh, ricey kind of smell. But then I think that I acquired a i acquired a taste for the aroma or or of sorts so uh, acquired a nose for it and it's just now every time i make the koji it's just like oh it's 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 like love it's just so sweet it's so um i don't know i don't know I, i'm maybe i just have a weird fetish with the uh, koji now but it's it works and it it i like it it's enjoyable to make and and half of it is just because of that aroma that I get as a reminder that it's actually working and that I am soon going to have fuzz covered rice.
1: And usually you don't really want a fuzz colored anything in your kitchen, but that's but when kind of any
0: a- any of these kind of ones that are just a white fuzz, there's just nothing. It's not like any other kind of mold that is that a person is used to, at least I'm used to coming being on food. So it's, it's like a white mold feels pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't seem that scary. Same with like, like tempeh. Um, although like tempeh, if it goes longer, it starts to sporulate and have the little black dots on it. But even then it's still different, like a, a white and black, um, fuzz versus like some of the funky things that can molds that can grow just on food. That's rotting.
1: There's yeah, and like that green mold that, yeah. that you sometimes get on bread, um, yeah. That one, that one is enough to make me throw something away. Like, Ooh, I'm just not, that just doesn't really look that great. I'm not going to take my chances um, on trying to salvage that. Cause sometimes you can just on cheeses, you can cut the mold out uh, oh, yeah. on certain types of cheeses, not on all of them.
0: Um, no, if the if, I mean, sometimes I've forgotten about a piece of cheese and it's like, Oh, it's kind of moldy on the outside. Let's just scrape that off. But if the mold's gone into the inside, I'm sure it's not great to be eating that anyway uh, at that point, but. Hey, you know, at least the, I've got to try it. I got to see and try and salvage it if I made a mistake. But the, the, maybe this is like a total uh, amateur realization. But when I just recently got a bread box or like a couple months ago, and mm-hmm. that was something that drastically changed homemade breads from going to would eventually kind of start to mold to not molding at all.
1: Really, I've had a lot of problems with bread boxes where it, it seems like things mold faster than if you leave them on the counter wrapped up pretty well. But maybe the bread boxes, it was, you know, like this old old houses and stuff like that. Maybe they just needed – the bread box itself needed to be cleaned. Um, and yeah, if you was, use
0: a dirty bread box, that might might not work.
1: It, it's probably more a result of a dirty bread box than anything else, but um, – Because once you kind of get mold in a certain place, then you can't really – it's kind of hard to get rid of. Um, But anyway, go on about your bread box. I want to hear about this.
0: Oh, nothing exciting. It's just I I saw one. I'd wanted one before and got one and it actually works really nicely. I was always kind of skeptical. It's like, well, why don't I just – like what's the box going to do? And I actually don't know everything about what the box is doing, but it works and it keeps the bread – great for a couple of days. And then it just stales nicely after that, as opposed to like potentially getting, getting moldy um, before, before I'm able to say, do something else like breadcrumbs or bread kvass or something else with the, the stale bread. It just, mm-hmm. it stales very, it stales progressively very nice and smooth for me. I, I like it a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, with your talk, uh, with your mention of saying that once something gets moldy, it's really hard to get rid of. That makes me think of my harsh crock, that I, that I I had mentioned in the the talk with the counterculture pottery interview that we had, and how it had in the one of the stones, the weight stones, how it just has had this mildewy smell to it. Yeah, and I got new stones because I had just stopped using it because it just would make the things below be kind of slightly mildewy kind of tasting. And so I didn't want, I mean, it's a 7.5 liter. So what, like a two gallon thing. I didn't really want to keep going through two gallons of, of vegetables to only be disappointed with most of the batch. So I finally got some new stones. I haven't tried anything from it. It's been going for a few weeks now, but uh, since it's been so long since I've used a water airlock system uh, with the, uh, you know, with the little water well and the water mm-hmm. sitting on top. It's been sitting out uh, because it's still pretty chilly here. So I don't have it in the basement. I just have it upstairs. And this little, little water pop bubble, it sounds like a, I, I kept thinking there was a notification, notification going off on a phone. Like it just, it had that that kind of, yeah, it was like very loud, very clear. It sounded like it was, it was recorded. I mean, well, I guess uh, maybe that doesn't make it sound as clear, but it just, it sounded so loud that it sounded like it was coming from a digital device. And I was, I, I was confused for the first day because it didn't happen very often, but it happened every once in a while. And it happened regularly enough that it seemed like it was some kind of notification reminder. I'm like, I've never heard this sound before, but it's coming from one of our devices. And I was checking for it, but I could not find the notification. And then I finally started hearing it. And then my wife got tired of me pointing out. It's like, did you hear that? That totally doesn't sound like it's coming from that, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's so funny. I've never heard of that before. Um but that I mean that's so interesting. Um Have you Suzanne, used have one you... of the
0: the the well water well airlock type of, type of systems?
1: No, I haven't. I really want one. Um again it's more of just I have had success fermenting in um like glass jars and um in mason jars and that sort of thing. Um, that I haven't felt as if, um, or, or in crossword, where they don't, they don't have the, um, water well, I've had enough success with that, that I've never really been like, oh, I'm going to splurge and get this. So. Yeah.
0: Well, whenever you are ready, you should get one in. And, and if you want a beautiful one, again, like the culture counterculture pottery one is very pretty. That's, it's very that's pretty. And, I, that's the one I'd want.
1: Yeah. That's kind of in my, in my dream wish list or, or if I get.
0: like, that would be the kind that if, um, you know, I wish I could just give to people all the time as gifts, because I think that that would just be a wonderful thing to give, but you know, I'm not, not, uh, not that wealthy to, uh, be giving them out, handing them out everywhere. But I do plan to get one at some point because they do look very nice. And especially the only, the only thing for me being here is that they're mostly going to go into a basement, And so for me, like, I don't hear the bubbles. I don't see the pot as often. So keeping it in the, on the kitchen counter is something I can do in the winter, but Mm -hmm. oftentimes a beautiful pot like that would just go in the basement. So it's hard for me to really, um, invest in something like that at this point, but maybe eventually, but yeah, I was, I, I, I found the key to getting the drops to sound the best and clearest was to fill it as high as I could because then the bubble had to travel through more water and come out more forcefully. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's trying to mimic these, these bubbles, these notification bubbles, I should have recorded it and I could have, I could have made it my notification for new text messages.
1: <laughs> yeah. You should, you should try to record it. I mean, you, are they coming pretty frequently now or is it, no,
0: it's, I mean, it's, it's past that. It's very
1: irregular and cause that would be hard to sit there and you, you know, if you don't know when it's going to pop to sit there and try to catch it <laughs> in time.
0: Yeah, and and hope that there were no other background noises or different things like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's actually it's passed. And most of that happens in in the first couple of weeks. I would say that now. I mean, I'm probably like three or four weeks in, so it's oh. it's done. It's over. But that, that. But I'm I'm interested to see. I'm hoping that this one worked and it didn't end up catching some mildewy bug that the old uh, stones had.
1: Yeah, I hope not because that's always really disappointing and um, it is is—it is just so hard to get rid of mold when you don't want it because it – I mean the only thing that I can think of is cleaning something with bleach, like 10% bleach and even then that's – it's not a pain but then you have the risk of it smelling like bleach because bleach yeah. is such a strong odor and that's not really
0: – I'm not a bleach kind of guy. No, I don't yeah. like
1: that. Well, we had – the only – I mean we – our, our – bathroom the um the way that the shower is connected to the drain <clears throat> um it collects water at the bottom of the u um you know the shower the water falls into the drain goes down the drain and I, it's just like a really weird design of whoever installed the shower um so it collects water at the bottom um and it started to create this really awful awful mold smell um and my husband's really sensitive he's um has, he doesn't have really bad allergies, but he's really sensitive to certain smells and he's really sensitive to mold. Um, and he would – it was bothering him a lot that he had um, a mold specialist come out to make sure that our house wasn't um, full of um, all kinds of different like black molds and stuff like that that were under the house because our house is really old. Uh, and so he had this really long conversation um about mold to this mold doctor um, and about house mold and black mold, which is different. A lot of these molds are different than food molds that we, that we kind of talk about in food. Um, But the, this guy, this mold expert said the best thing to do is just bleach. So we've been using bleach occasionally. And I mean, it has a very strong odor, the bleach and it takes a few days for it to disappear. So we don't do it very often. Um, But yeah, it's,
0: yeah, yeah, bleach kind of just makes me think of mold because it's, I've had to use it uh, occasionally to different places. And But but since we've kind of just talked down mold for the last few minutes, might as well bring it back up because there was, some, uh, interesting, there was an interesting article that came out recently about mold on cheese and uh, blue cheese, blue cheese mold having sex for the first time or first time that we're able to watch it, I think. Would that be a yeah. proper way to say it?
1: Yeah, maybe watch it. That might be the right way to say it. Um I I read the abstract of the article um and I again like I don't know much about mold and this is so fascinating something that sparked my interest in the past few weeks. So, um I I think it's really cool that they figured this out and they can watch it.
0: So what they're figured out? In a not out. creepy way. Yeah, I mean, it's mold, so, you know, I don't think anyone's Uh, has any issue with watching uh, Penicillium Roqueforti uh, uh, procreating. I mean, it's kind of just the interesting aspect of this is that Penicillium Roqueforti along with other molds in cheese have been thought to be uh, asexual and they, or or that they don't even have a sexual cycle. But, and I don't know if there's actually a difference between differentiation there, but that that they're actually finding that they do have a lot of the, the setup for sex and in not uh, not having been able to do that. There are certain things that uh, that cloning, which is the normal way that it's propagated for cheese production. When that's not able to happen, there's sometimes degenerative diseases or, or issues that come up in cloning something. So the idea of being able to, mix genes and, and mix through the sexual cycle that could mean a Roqueforti have different potential in different uh, industrial uses. I think that uh, it's fascinating for one, that it's just, things are thought one way and then realized, Oh, Hey, maybe we had it wrong. And then at the same time that this might actually be very beneficial in some instances, not that blue cheese is at a risk of if the Roqueforti never, sexually produces again that it's at risk at any time soon of not existing but it could help in certain instances or save a business if they're having issues with their their clone cheese or mold.
1: Yeah, I think there's also a lot of potential too to kind of play around um with these daughter molds that they're creating through the through you know the parents with um you know um changing some of the the taste characteristics, um, not that you want to change too much of them because uh, penicillium rocaforti of, rock of ch- ch- has a very distinct smell um, and taste when it's inoculated into uh, cheeses or it's that specific type of cheese. It's that, you know, um, I don't – to me it smells very much like um, something you – know, it's just moldy um, and like feet and that sort of thing. But – maybe they could manipulate it and try to have like some undertones of something that would be pleasant, that would complement the stinkiness of it. Are you, you,
0: do you like blue cheese? I guess that would be something to ask.
1: I do like blue cheese, but I don't like Rockefeller cheese. I think that odor is way too strong for me, but I like blue cheese. I think that there is a difference. I can taste a difference between like Gorgonzola and um, Rockefort cheese.
0: Now, as far as I understand, they're all using the uh, P. Rockaforte mold. It's just different, either strains or uh, method of creating the cheese. Correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's the difference. So, I, you know, I, I think it's kind of like when you're making wine, how wine from different regions of the world tastes different, um, even though it's the same varietal of grapes. So. I think some of the difference is part of maybe the milk that they're using to make the cheese.
0: Yeah. And, and, and method definitely has something mm-hmm. to do with it because there are different ones and oh, there's this, this cheese that I cannot think of what the name is off the top of my head, but it's made in Wisconsin and it's a blend of a blue cheese and uh, cheddar style. And it's the best experience that I've had of that uh Roquefort-y kind of, flavor that just doesn't overpower. And it's like one cheese that I can almost get people that don't like any kind of blue cheese to eat and enjoy.
1: Yeah. See, I like I kind of like that it's a little off flavored and it has a little bit of funk to it. But I mean, Rockford cheese is way over the top for me. It's just like way too stinky. So um, I mean, I I would be willing to try that because I like that little bit of like um, not bitterness, but kind of surprise element of it being kind of stinky.
0: Well, and, and this would be introducing a sexual cycle. What it's talking about in this article is that it would have considerable interest in the for industrial purposes because the kind of changes that they could see through the uh, generation and recombination of different traits, different colors, growth rate, and metabolite production. I mean, those are just a few of the things that could potentially come from this. And so I don't know what they mean by color, as in different shades of blue that bluish blackish kind of color or if they mean that we could have some red blue cheese
1: yeah i just thought of that when you said differences in color that'd be really awesome to have you know maybe like a rainbow effect of uh of different types of blue cheese that'd be kind of neat to see what color you're gonna get
0: although as soon as you said rainbow effect that's like the one thing that i remember which i haven't really ever looked into deeply but whenever like i rainbow colored molds on fermentation of any sort would generally be a reason to discard. Like rainbow, like if there's a full rainbow, yeah, it's probably not something that should be digested or even risked because that can be a lot more toxic.
1: Yeah. I bet um, this mold person my husband talked to would tell you that that's probably the most dangerous type of mold ever. Um, yeah. Cause I've heard that too, like rainbow mold or mold that is multicolored is not stuff that you want to even deal with.
0: No. So don't scrape off your rainbow molds off of cheese. If they're there, unless this ends up, this, uh, rope sex ends up turning into rainbows. Um, then maybe go for it. But until then, uh, just don't scrape it off. That's the one thing I do remember. So,
1: yeah. Well, did they also, did they mention anything of how they're going to, um, what their next step is about, uh, the Penicillium molds um, like the the sex process and like the next step and how besides the what you had mentioned um, about the differences in colors and um, that sort of thing were or, or was this really just like we're interested in seeing if we can make the mold have sex
0: that was the that was the interest of this study and it was done over a period of four weeks and they were eg- examining it. Th- with a binocular loop and optical microscope. And then they were uh, checking it. So it was, uh, they have some photographs too. Oh, I want to see photographs, but um, I don't see any here really. But uh, I would like to see some. um, uh, But yeah, no, I don't know if they are continuing on with this, with this specific study, or if it's just industry interest that could turn into something at some point.
1: Hmm. Okay. I'm sure that they probably have some sort of next step of how they're going to use this information. Cause it's kind of a breaking, breaking ground for lots of different experiments that they can um, use for other things. So um, yes, it's it, something it,
0: that's it's, never been observed before in this kind of mold. So it's exciting times in blue cheese uh, mold sex.
1: Yeah. Well, and the last sentence here in the conclusion section of the um, article it says screening for, phenotypic and metabolic differences between these populations could potentially guide future development strategies. Um, So I'm guessing a lot of it is, yeah, how it looks, how they can change the look of the mold. Um, And then also how the metabolic part, how fast or slow that they can change the mold to make cheeses. So maybe they can make the cheese faster. Oh, they
0: they have photos you can see the sexual structures of penicillium Roqueforti close up. Um, they, they're blue. I don't know if you see that on there, but they will be in the show notes. I'll definitely have this. Uh, it's the full article linked in the show notes. And, uh, this was thanks to on Twitter. I had noticed this one from, uh, uh, microbiologist Ben Wolf, uh, on, on Twitter. He was talking about scientists have finally coax the blue cheese mold to have sex. No, cha- Tom Jones required. So, I was definitely thanks to him for posting that because I liked seeing this.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting article. And I like, again, like my interest in mold has been. Did you see the photos? Well, I clicked on them and it, my computer's um, thinking. So oh, I did see a little I
0: reloaded it and then it opened just fine.
1: Okay. Maybe that's what I need to do. Like, um, They are really tiny. And then when I clicked on it, it was taking, it was, it, it was just thinking. So let's see if it. Um, oh, there it is. Oh yeah. That's so neat.
0: And now um, everyone's going to have to go, go rushing to the show notes to see these things.
1: Yeah. So, um, oh, that is so cool. It's fun to see how they, how with the arrows and everything, the, the pick in the pictures, how you can see all of the, the points out the um, female sexual structures and that sort of thing. So um, and how they can make get them to mate and stuff like that. So that's really neat. Yeah. Huh. So everyone, and, everyone, go check it out. Yeah, and um, the ascospores, the sexual spores, um, and how they they're developing and that sort of thing. So. I just
0: like that these photographs are taken with just a, a relatively inexpensive uh, Nikon D300. So like it's just like a a, a consumer grade. Um, DSLR camera. It's mm-hmm. kind of neat. So you need to get a microscope so then you can start taking photographs.
1: I know, and then I can show pictures of yeast budding and that sort of thing.
0: Oh yeah. Um, you cause... can even download this directly into a PowerPoint slide, the image, so that you can start your own PowerPoint presentation. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um as long as you reference them correctly. No, I'm they kidding.
0: have it referenced on the slide right oh, there for okay. you.
1: Oh, that's even more convenient. Yeah, so now start um, doing
0: some presentations on this.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Um so, anyway, so that's a really cool article. Thanks for, thanks Ben for posting it. And thanks Brandon for bringing it to our attention so we could talk about it. Um, and then moving on to something else that I received in um, my inbox today was from um, the Oregon State um, Alumni Associ- Association. But you don't have to, I don't think that this is limited to just um, people who went to Oregon State, but they're offering a professional um startup workshop for craft for creating and maintaining and developing your craft brewery. If anyone is interested in the, in that, um we'll have a link to it in the show notes. But there's also um they're doing a craft brewery startup and they're also doing a cidery um workshop.
0: The craft um, cider one seemed really fun.
1: Yeah, and it looks really neat. There's um like a one and a half minute Um, you know, video about the craft brewery uh, workshop that they're hosting and it's in Portland. Um, So if anyone's in the Northwest, um, they should, and they're interested, they should really check this out. I'm sure it's full of all sorts of um, information. Oh, um, that would be really helpful to starting Um, your brewery it looks like and it's just three days too so it's you know three full days um, and they talk about creating business plans and um, financing and accounting um, distribution Um, so it's not fermentation related per se I mean they're going to go through all of the you know uh political aspects of it and how to get the business up and running and licensing and stuff like that. But I'm sure if like someone is really interested, it would be very inexpensive to do and to go to this three-day course and get a lot of really great insight.
0: Yeah. I mean, yes, definitely geared towards the entrepreneur that's going to start out on these things. But that's where I, again, the, really the, the craft cider uh, popping up in the United States, I just think that it's got a lot of potential and I would like to see more uh, craft cider breweries starting up. And I like this workshop, how it's a hybrid online and on-site course. So there's even a webinar like that's 26 minutes. I think that I was noticing I haven't, I wasn't able to watch it, but going over everything that they'll be going over, like a little slideshow presentation talk about what it will cover. So that's definitely more in depth if a person wants more information, but I like this hybrid part of it. It's like, it starts for like a, I don't, I don't know. The online part is for a week or longer, At the end of April and into May and then they have the on-site last few days. So it's not like it's only three days and cram a bunch of information um, and then not have time to really formulate the kind of questions that people may have that they didn't know they have until they learn the stuff. So this way they get to learn a lot before they even show up to actually be around all these people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it says I'm I'm looking at the um syllabus for the Cider Entrepreneurialship course um for the spring. And it it is a it's a two week um course that's taught online. And then I guess you meet for three days. Um so that's I mean, you just talked about that just now, and that's that's a really cool way of um, you know, combining those two aspects of like internet learning, um, um e-learning and then physically being somewhere and being able to talk to people face-to-face because sometimes it's hard to learn something online and not be able to talk or ask questions to professionals because they're not available through um, um, online classes. Some, sometimes I'm, I'm, you know, I've never really taken an online class, but generally speaking, sometimes it's hard to have a face-to-face conversation with the instructor
0: Which, yeah, again, because people also, I just really go back to, I think this is going to be huge too, just because people will formulate questions over those first, like you said, two weeks. So they'll be able to come up with all kinds of questions as they're learning and then be around not only other people that are wanting to do this so they can network and talk with other people, but then at the same time, they can have those questions ready. It's like, I've got these three days. Now I've got these questions and I'm right in front of someone and I can Mm -hmm. ask them.
1: Yeah. And the cider industry is really exploding. Um, At least out West, there's a lot of places that are showing up that are specializing in ciders and meats. Um, And so I just think it's a really cool place to go into fermentation. It's very similar to winemaking, but yet in in the um, harvesting and the growing of the fruit and um, that and picking the fruit and doing that sort of thing from the beginning part of the fermentation. But then from the second half, when you're actually doing when once you inoculate with your yeast and everything, that seems to be in my mind more of like the brewing term. So it's kind of a marriage between the two um, different industries. So it's kind of because there's a lot of breweries here that do sometimes make cider and some wineries, some, you know, they make wine but then sometimes they also make cider. So it's kind of neat that they're marrying the two of them to this is a really cool um, thing to see, I guess.
0: Yeah. So everyone go check it out. I'll put the links in the show notes too for that. Was there uh, anything else that uh, you've come up with this last week?
1: Hmm. Let's see. What else did I start besides the miso? Um, oh, more fermentation. And the bread. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I I mean, Austin really like uh, got me um, like sparked what, – what's the correct term to use? Like sparked the – ignited the flame again, I guess, in fermentation and like doing home fermentations. Um, and let's see. I uh, started some Beely, which is really fun. Um, You've talked about it a lot. And I didn't have a culture until recently. Um, and so it's just really fun to watch it transform in like 24 hours. It goes from liquid milk to this type of Elmer – Elmer's glue GAC type of thing that you can eat. That's really good.
0: But it's not the long – like it's not super stretchy, right? Or it is?
1: No, it's more – I would say more um, like uh, -like, GAC-like in that it is not stringy when you put it on a spoon and then you tilt the spoon to let it fall back into the – into the yogurt it kind of falls in one blob
0: sounds like you got something in between yeah yeah so
1: it's kind of in between um the two so that it's it's kind of fun it's kind of fun to watch other people watch you eat it if they don't know what it is um so we've been playing around with that a little bit um and i think that's it i mean he's i haven't brewed beer in a long time but i think we're gonna i'm I'm gonna be brewing some beer this weekend um so I'll let everyone know how that goes, but yeah, I mean, it's springtime, i think you know it's it's warm here in Southern California, so it's you know you just ha- i think have a lot more motivation to be doing stuff instead of in fermenting and being outside and starting gardens um and jump starting all of that stuff than um in the winter, so um maybe that's also why I've been um doing a lot of fermentations recently.
0: Oh yeah. It's definitely that kind of time of year and it's warmer here and I've got my uh, seedlings all started, started those kind of late. So we'll see how this year ends up being, but I've got a plenty of cabbage. All those seedlings just took off this year. And so let's just hope that slugs and other things don't attack them. That's the only thing is like the, the holy kind of leaves that get so, but there should be plenty. I mean, I think I've got about 20 cabbages total between Napa and, and regular green cabbage.
1: Oh, wow. So, um, what when do you usually plant those outside? I know that you do you have like a greenhouse or some sort of green container or um apparatus that inside to grow your seedlings and then eventually you're going to put them outside?
0: Yeah, I have I have a like a sunroom that I'm keeping oh it's just just trying for the first time this year just with a uh keeping that mildly heated
1: mm-hmm. because it
0: gets plenty of sun and it's an insulated room, but in the winter time it's we just keep that door closed and it just is freezing in there. So, um, but we're keeping it heated now. And so it's got all windows on all sides. And then we have them actually in little, those little, like, I don't know, inexpensive, uh, PVC pipe and plastic wrap, uh, mm-hmm. greenhouse things, those little portable greenhouses. So we have mm-hmm. them inside of those as well. So they, they should be they I mean, they, it's the best location I've ever had for seedlings. And it was a requirement just because having a one-year-old child, it's, it was not feasible for us to put them next to a big window that we had or sliding glass door that we had before. So we can't really do that anymore because seedlings and dirt and everything are just so exciting. So it'll be fun to be out there in the the summer with him in the garden, but, uh, hopefully between him and the chickens and the bugs, we actually, our seedlings all survive.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. Um, and I want to hear more about your garden, like throughout the throughout the harvest this year and like from start to finish because a lot of, I mean, a lot of fermentations, all fermentations or most ve- all vegetable fermentations start from the garden. So um, I'm hoping to get a garden out. Mine won't be probably as big as yours. I don't have as much space as you probably do. Um, but I am still trying to figure out where I want to put my garden um, and what I want to put in my garden. So I still have a few more weeks because it's easier to the growing season here is, um, you know, it doesn't really change that much. Um, you know, spring, summer, fall, and summer here in Southern California is very offset from the rest of the country. Summer, it doesn't feel like summer until um, actually some, you know, the, physical summer starts which is june 21st right that's the first official day of summer that's kind of the first official day of summer here and it goes all the way until october and september october are actually really hot here usually so um very different than in the mid in the midwest where september it's starting to get cooler and you're picking fall you know apples and that sort of thing and then october you're kind of done with harvest and um Everything has grown, and you're getting preparing for winter. So, I have some more time.
0: Yeah, you've got you've got time. You've got time down there. I I started late, so we'll see how this goes this year. But hey, there will be something to, to ferment out of my garden. I know that. So, and it sounds like you'll have some as well. And uh, I guess we'll continue following up on that in the future. And uh, I guess with all of our follow up and other news for today, you can find those in the show notes at firmup.com/podcast/sixty. And you can also find us on FirmUp, or on Twitter at FirmUp, on Facebook at FirmUp, and anywhere else at FirmUp. And until next time, firm up.